Well, before we start on our plan topic, I wanted to ask you, Brandon. This is this is a little uh, uh, miniature. This is this is the opening act for for our our thing this week uh, on the software defined talk members only white paper exegesis podcast, and that is. Um, so I, I, I finished writing my column for the register yesterday. And by finished, I mean, you know, I just need to read it like three or four more times and remove some of the stupider jokes and put in better ones and things like that. But then I realized I don't want to publish this. This is this is the kind of like uh, this is the kind of like inadvertently knocking over a, a, a shit pile of my own making that I would not like to be responsible for. So, you know, maybe one day I'll publish it. But. I don't know. I, I, I have mixed feelings. So I'm, I want to ask you, Brandon, what would be some good topics that I could write in, let's say, 90 minutes when we're done with this podcast so I could email off my column today? Um, well, how many letters are <laughs> how many, words how many characters? How many words? Uh, how many glyphs? Well, like an eight eight hundred words or, it's, or a thousand. What th- th- this is this is a good insight. So the way it works is, I get paid for eight hundred words, and it would be good uh-huh. if I sent less than fifteen hundred, if that makes sense, right? So okay. often my pieces are nine hundred to a thousand uh, words. So I don't know how many how many Unicode characters okay. that results in, but that's that's about the that's, target. It's basically, you know, to think about it one way, if you read, it's basically an article you might read without having to click to go to page two. It's one, one web page article essentially. Okay. Got it. I think, is that, is that true? Anyways. No, it should be like a pretty quick read. Something Mm -hmm. you can read in like probably five minutes less, maybe, you know, just something that's not that. And if, and if you're like, well, I think if you're like my favorite people in the world, it's the thing that you can very quickly read and come up with another delightful way of explaining why I'm uh, inept and a moron. But there was a uh, a feature piece, as they say, that was just published today that I wrote, and it was good. My favorite comment so far has been uh, the register should hire adults to write for them. So I'm just representing for the frustrated junior high writer that I remember being and probably still am. There you go. <laughs> All right. Well, I would say some topics you could do. I mean, some somewhat timely to what we're going to talk about, I think, would be, uh, you know, like maybe something with a headline like why all the hoopla over VM versus Docker versus containers is mm-hmm. missing the point. Yeah, you know, you could yeah. say you could kind of take an angle that people really are getting all hung up on all this stuff, but really this stuff's going to sit around for a while and there's going to be a natural conversion over a long, long period of time. But oh, that's good. No, that's good. Brandon. Nothing, yep. nothing really dies in it, right? It's just like, Hey, the mainframe's going to be replaced. Nope. Mainframe grew. I think mm. a few, a few percent last year. I don't want to like say a number and get it wrong, but like, um, I think that's sort of, cause that's like a very in vogue fun topic. Everyone's like Docker's replacing VMware. And I mean, Docker, the container, not Docker, the company, but no Docker, the company is the next. Yeah. And it's like, actually, no, all this stuff is going to coexist for a long time, but with a, a new movement towards container and applications, but the, the, the virtual machine, much like the mainframe, much like <laughs> COBOL, much like everything, uh, much like the password will live on for a long time so don't worry and don't and don't get caught up in all this stuff right like if you're just doing your job you don't need to pay attention too much to that nonsense that's what you have your friends at software defined talk the free podcast and software defined talk the exegesis white paper podcast we're following this so you don't have to yeah you know i feel like i've used this line before but uh i could title that one i'm sorry i caught hear you 
<laughs> there you go. So I don't know. It seems hot just with all the you know yeah. the interviews. I think we're going to talk about. And, that's good. That's good. Uh, that's a good one. Yeah, you know, I think that's always a good one. You all right. What, your DevOps. What else we got? What else we got here going on in the writers' room? Oh wait, we already did my DevOps. What? Did you do? You said you said that no one does DevOps or something. Oh like? yeah, yeah, yeah. I don't. I don't have enough for that yet. That's that's. Uh, I gotta. I gotta figure that one out because that's a. It's not so much that it's a bold claim, but I should. I need to have some some data behind it or something right. well i, I think know. the one i like there like i i think an article i want someone to write is called like uh i'm gonna call it like like uh beware of the process profits right and that mm-hmm. would be everybody showing up and getting obsessed with like agile um devops um what was it before like uh what's the old um ITIL, um, you know, before that it was like object oriented. Yeah, it was yeah. uh, uh, now it's design thinking. Um, you know, we could just go on uh, like now what's the SRE thing? It's like listen, every there's always people just like in business books and just like everything and diets, right? Like there's a core set of principles that are pretty well understood that and we get bored with hearing them and they get repackaged in lots of different ways. But again, don't get too obsessed with this stuff. It's not like DevOps is bad or Agile is bad. It's like you can take from these things what you need, right? But at the end, you can you know your goal is to create builds, uh, to create great software. Don't and, and if you hire like a profit, you know, that comes in is like everything has to be DevOps. The, the stand-up meeting isn't long enough. The the continuous delivery tool chain is, is is incorrect. And those people like start to take over. Then they're actually the enemy, right? Mm. They're actually the ones that are preventing you from succeeding. So don't like, you know, acknowledge that sometimes in your organization, people just get, you know, the, or the other way to say that is like, you know, you know, we we get lost, right? We you know the forest through the trees kind of analogy, right? Like we we forget that like actually doing DevOps is not the goal. Doing yeah. Agile is not the that's that's that. so I think that's, that's a, good a good idea. Good that's that's about. a little like it's it's kind of a companion piece to one I wrote a while back called the uh, uh, "Don't get hoodwinked by the DevOps hustler," but it's like more yeah. uh, it's it's, it's, it's more detailed, right? Maybe that one would be called uh, you know it's more than post-it notes on glass walls. Yeah, yeah. that's not I mean, very funny, good, but right? I, I like I like that scene. <laughs> the post-it will not save you. I yeah. Think that would- they're fun. Uh, yeah, if if you, uh, if you could curse, it would be like there's always some fucking post-it notes involved. Like no, right. Anyways, well, I do think like DevOps and design thinking are like the like the two uh, twins of like the new the new new process profits, right? It's mm. like agile spawn design thinking and DevOps, right? Mm-hmm. Like, and then mm-hmm. I'm sure before that, like uh, you know, I can't remember like what was it called, like object-oriented analysis, more like mm. object space, uh, BMC. What were we? calling that whole thing it was like we do oh, i don't know you do the unified iterative, modeling iterative. process yeah, iterative UML, like yeah iterative spawn agile which spawn design thinking and devops which are like these twins which is going to spawn some kind of security thing it doesn't have a name yet like it's still being incubated but there'll be this mm. new security thing that's going to pop out um so you know there's always kind of like some lineage and it's kind of fun to like and again the message to that for the dear reader would just be like guys it's okay it's okay if you like you hear all this and you're not doing it all right you're actually doing it fine you're doing it and you can even make some analogies to parenting right yes you're doing it fine is your child are they attending school are they generally fed do they just have one or two stains on their shirt you're doing fine right oh. you're keep it up right just you know yeah. just push on through we don't need to uh you know that that through. that last uh taking taking your analogy and then de-analogizing it into a, an, an actual topic that that is a topic that kept uh my wife and i up till 2 30 a.m last night just uh just trying to figure out 
if uh as always if if we're doing the right thing and it's it's you know with the internet is about as helpful as figuring diagnosing if you have cancer when it comes to that <laughs> no that's true don't don't turn to the internet for medical advice or or parenting advice it's oh my god not, it never helps. It's it's not going to. There are no answers out there that are helpful for you. All right. Well. Well. You got any other ones? I mean, that's those are. Uh, I think four or so solid ones. I forgot what the the, the fourth one was, but that's fine. But uh, you know, you got you got any other good suggestions? Well, I'll just leave you on this. You know, sometimes it's nice just to go with like an adjacent tech piece, and that would just be like, hey, this is how you pick your next uh, bag, your next uh, carry bag, mm. and uh, um, bold choice. Like, you know, and then you know the editor is going to be like, this isn't what we pay you for. And, and then you respond back to them and say, no, 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 no. This is exactly what you pay yeah, me for. Yeah. And that, that article may get – I don't know exactly what your traffic is, but I predict that article could even be a little bit higher than normal because that's yeah. tech people and you know, your, uh, your lo- what is it called? Your daily carry? I mean uh-huh. it just goes hand in hand. We, we, we as an industry like to talk about that, so never be afraid to write, write a little off topic. I'm, I'm going to write that one down. Now what was your fourth one? Selecting a backpack. You had uh, the battle over VMs and containers. Does anyone really do DevOps? Beware of process profits. And then then you had what sounded like a really good one, but I was thinking about something else. I don't know. I think that was it. I okay. think if if not, we have to like stop. And I should have I, sh- I should have been recording so I could go back and listen to this. <laughs> ha! Yeah, you know, I think I think uh, I think you know this the the last topic. It reminds me of. I wouldn't call it one of my favorite, but one of the Hunter Thompson pieces that I. Uh, think about the most often and that is i think i forget the name of the book in one of his little known books or or lesser known books i should say which is uh it's a collection of essays he wrote or essays columns he wrote for the san francisco chronicle and the first one you know if if you know only a little bit about hunter thompson you can imagine how this piece came about he probably it was probably uh, uh you know a day or so after his editors had said where's the piece hunter and and he was like oh uh. And and had like you know a dozen eggs and some bloody marys supposedly whatever he does did and uh, and then he wrote a story about how he was trying to take his girlfriend at the time to go get a tattoo of a jaguar on her and uh, not only that he had tried to con- he had convinced her to do this so that he would have something to write about which is <laughs> which is perhaps the purest example of Gonzo journalism that that you could come up with I think. <laughs> <laughs> and, and and you know as as I would say that that you know when when it gets in the top three you don't rank them but Hunter Thompson is one of my you know top three uh, writers of all time and I have to say that piece is exactly as good as you would assume it was which is to say not good. <laughs> it's just... Well, that's hard though. That's like I I understand why he's like in your top three. I think it's it's weird though when he's like he's so unique that like other than just acknowledging his own kind of you know personal style greatness in his own ways like and i just don't think anyone you can't like really replicate you know how like writers always say like the good writers are great readers like they've read mm. everything and they know all the like the stuff it's like i don't think i don't know i just feel like he's so i don't know i just almost feel like you can't like a great athlete like yeah it's, so you watch it you're like well i just can't i don't have the no, body very, to like do that very true. um i don't know maybe, maybe other people do i just he just is like to me like one of the most unique kind of writers ever so i don't i would never even venture in to try to do what he does right so um it's cool though yeah well closing that if 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 anyone hasn't uh read hunter thompson stuff you know there's of course fear and loathing las vegas that's delightful but 
I would recommend. I think I think my favorite of his books is this uh, one called The Great Shark Hunt, which is basically just a big, big, gigantic, I don't know, 600 pages collection of uh, of all of his, of, of lots of things that he wrote, various pieces. There's a whole lot about Nixon in there, if you're into that. Okay. Like but an it, anthology or something? Yes, is yes, exactly. Is, right? It's an okay. anthology. And, and I like that book because it's very representative of everything that he does, right? Obviously... Fear and Loathing in Las Vegas is is sort of like the uh, the masterpiece, if you will. And I think I think you can you know if you if you read the all the stuff in the Great Shark Hunt, and then you read Fear and Loathing in Las Vegas, there'll be a much better like you'll understand a lot of what's going on. And, and I don't know, it's 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 better. Uh, it's it's like a very comfortable chair to sit down and read a book in. That's that's what the one book gives the other. Whew, that was a pained analogy, but. <laughs> You got there. <laughs> yeah. So this week, <laughs> coming out of the uh, – the... yes? Did I get dropped? No, nope, you're there. I'm sorry. You're back. I heard someone say hello in the background. I don't know what nope. that was. There's a nope. ghost. Anyways. Oh, no. Let me, let me... – oh, man, I don't want to – okay. I'll edit this around 13. Stupid. Goddamn. Oh, I know what it is. I keep going to uh I keep going to one of these interviews and there's a video that auto plays. Maybe I'll leave uh. that in. So that is very topical. I was looking over one of the three pieces we we're going to talk about this week and uh and and let's get back to the auto playing video that was confusing me and how that is highly representative of one of the main criticisms of this form. But we talked about this on the uh, the regular podcast uh episode 108 softwaredefinedtalk.com slash 108. Chances are, if you're listening to this, you've already listened to that. Uh, if not, then congratulations for being someone who only listens to this podcast out of the two, which is sort of odd. We should uh, sit you down on a, uh, what do they call those fainting couches? One of those reclining couches and, and interview you about what's going on in your life. Uh, anyhow, so this is what I would call, uh, I don't know, uh, the big fluffy leather chair interview. It's sort of like you're at a conference. One is at a conference. And then all of a sudden you hear that like some big old fancy CEO is, is going to come out. And they're going to, you might have, uh, you know, I, I think the stereotypical image are all the recode conferences, right? They have their, their signature red chairs, right? And I think they're almost like those galactic battle chairs, the Nordic ones that kind of like curve up on your head. And they're kind of like the equivalent of like uh, a turtleneck. Where they're kind of like surrounding you. I forget. I had to go look that up. But so you got you got an interviewee, an interviewer. And if it's if it's like a super fantastic big headline thing, you'll have two people. So you'll have a um, who are the who are the two bigwigs at uh, at Recode? I can't think of her name now. This is embarrassing. Kara Swisher. Yes, yes. So you'll have Kara Swisher, and then the other guy who retired. Um, Mossberg or whatever, and they might be interviewing. You know, they'll interview Mark Zuckerberg and and ask mm-hmm. some questions. So right. now, that that's sort of like the most glitzy stuff because people like consumer stuff. But you see this at other conferences. Like uh, apparently, the Channel Reseller News had a conference, and they had three of these interviews with Meg Whitman, CEO of HPE. You got Steve Singh. How do you say his last name? Singe or Singh? Man, that's embarrassing too. Uh, for uh, for Docker, and then Pat Gesslinger. Right from uh see how come i can say gesslinger that's a weird last name uh from Lewis whitman nice and simple uh from ceo of vmware and these interviews are uh, they have uh i forget what the the couch looks like uh, it's a big big black fluffy chair 
And they're interviewed one-on-one. I forget the name of the interviewee, but I'm sure he's like a big guy at CRN. And there's just like a series of questions that get asked. And usually um, usually these interviews are pretty good, which is why I uh, power through autoplaying videos uh, to read them and, and the mini page is done. But... I mean that's that's the the so this interview actually happens at a conference, right? And we could we should have another episode about the uh the backstory of conferences and how they work. But it results in one, you have that that session, but two, I think the the crowning achievement for it are the the after event assets that are produced, which is maybe a video. They're always a little weird about doing videos. It's it's surprisingly inconsistent uh to find a video. The Recode people, they will post the video I think day of or something, which is, you know, kudos to them. That probably cost them, I don't know, ten, fifteen, twenty thousand dollars or something to, to do something in that area. Video production's really expensive. Those 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 all black clothing uniforms that the A V people wear, not cheap. It takes a lot of money to buy those outfits. Uh so and then also uh you can have uh a lot of page views. And there's two ways that people end up doing this. So one, you would be very, very lucky. If you find the transcript for one of these interviews, just in one web page that you can, you know, this happens every now and then, but it's very rare uh, that you have that. And as an example, the three CRN interviews, I, I lost count, but they managed to spread out what was, you think these maybe like 20 minute interviews, probably a 20 minute interview into over 30 pages that you click on. So they take they take the question and then the answer, and then it's a slideshow, as they say, and you got to uh, click to see the next thing, which is just, I don't know. Th- those those big fluffy chairs don't pay for themselves, I guess. They got to make money somehow. <laughs> and then, and then, yes, a, yes a, they do. Another, another thing that you see, and I took a screenshot of this just coincidentally from this morning, is um, Axios, which uh, I, I, I forget, I don't know the history of what Axios is, but it's one of those like, Let's buzzfeed the shit out of how news works with a with a good uh, concision. The, people are eavesdropping into the last five years of Brandon and I talking about how to do tech news and it being concise, and that's what Axios does. But they had, and they have a nice white. Their chair doesn't look fluffy enough. They're clearly sort of a startup. They need to get better chairs. But they interviewed uh, Sheryl Sandberg, and this is the other thing that you see happen is not only can you live blog or live tweet the interview as it's occurring, but you can also write multiple, multiple articles which uh, about it, right? Like, so so just there's three of them that were just in my feed reader, coincidentally, right? So all from the interview, Sandberg, Russia financed ads, fake news, a new threat. So that was probably like one question. Sandberg, Facebook would run Blackburn ad taken down by Twitter. That's probably another thing she said. And then another article, each of these are headlines. Sandberg, Facebook owes apology to the the, the American people. Wait, Facebook owes the American people an apology, and it's just like, whoa, man, you can really like churn out the stuff with it. So, that I mean, that's that's kind of my summary of of what this format is, how how it's encountered, and uh, and and what goes on there. And then and then I'll shut up here for a little bit to uh, you know get 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 the 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 brand intake. But the other thing that's uh, educational. Uh, I mean, obviously, there's the content, which is usually, like I said, pretty good because you have a well-polished CEO who kind of knows the messaging and the strategy and they kind of go over that. But the other thing that's good is this gives you a a good study of uh, media training and how to do how to be the interviewee to a limited extent, how to be an interviewer. But it's very educational in that sense that you can get you can sort of witness the uh, the sausage being made on stage. So what do you think, Brandon? Did I leave out anything of uh, summarizing that stuff? What would you, 
what kind of excelsior if if to use a fancy word would you uh would you pad that with <laughs> well i think you know the basic thing on all these interviews is just how well prepared i think the the journalist is right so i think you mentioned kara switch swisher and uh was it what Waltz Mossberg, right? Like they mm-hmm. typically are pretty prepared and pretty in depth as far as like actually interviewing the subjects. Um, so I think because that's going to drive the the content a lot. And I think you know what they end up doing with the content is is pretty much gen- often kind of dictated by like how big a name the journalist is. So I think in the case of the Walt Mossberg, Kara Swishers, right? They can do the videos and let put the tweets out, and it's you know much more digestible in Axios. Which I think is actually pronounced Axios, so apologies to them. Um, but you know they can really put it out in a, a much cleaner, different form. And I do think in the case of uh, was it Channel Reseller, right? They they are pretty much tied to a very antiquated page view business model that yeah. really, in some ways, limits what I think is some pretty compelling content. Like I actually think the journalists here did a pretty good job interviewing them, like as good a job as I think of some of those other bigger name guys. But a lot of his work, I mean, you have to really want to read something to click through. <laughs> I think one of them was 31 pages of uh, of like clicking, right? Yeah. And, with like an ad every five, and and, so, and it's it's got um, so much. It's got you know, remember the era a couple of years ago where people were talking about ad blockers. I mean this this site, it has yeah. so much crap in it that for example, I'm I'm here on uh, on Chrome on OS OS whatever it is Mac OS, and uh, every time you know you have to scroll down to see the actual content. And then you click on next page, and because there's so much weird ad, like then you have to scroll down again. It's just like very weird. And sometimes even when you get to the new page, you'll scroll down, and then all the JavaScript finishes rendering, and then it it goes makes you go back up to the top. It's just like it's ridiculous. And uh, yeah, their their CMS system um, should be updated. Razor thin margins. So, so yeah. So I mean, I think and and. You know, there is a bigger question here. I mean, I think we we can definitely, you know, complain about it, but you know, I just that's just a lo- much longer topic that many people have discussed, right? That the reason they do that is you know, obviously just getting paid for journalism in any way, uh, shape, or form today is very, very difficult. Unless you're the New York Times, Washington Post, right? The drop off is significant. So, uh, I am sympathetic to them. Like, hey, man, we want to do this kind of coverage. Uh, we want to interview these people. I think somebody did a lot of prep work, but you know, in their case, the only way they can make money is to kind of like almost make the content, um, you know, impossible to read end to end. Right? It's very like yeah. snackable, clickable. Right? Maybe you click to one page that someone told you. Like someone's like, "Hey, read this one page," but reading it end to end, it's almost you know, the the format almost makes it nearly impossible. Yeah. yeah. So have you have you ever done an extensive interview like this? I mean, never like on stage where I think it was just one-on-one for, for that long. I mean, I do – it's kind of back to I think something we talked about more about media training. I do think it's interesting um, that these guys have are doing that and that you can tell each one of these CEOs have been you know pretty well media trained. Now, I will say the format is um, – and I find this kind of fascinating and in all forms of kind of uh, communication is that like we as human beings like we actually know what uh is entertaining and helps us communicate like so i'll just give an example like if we watch uh the local news any local news broadcast will usually have a 
uh, a man and a woman as the central broadcasters because studies have shown like a woman's voice and a man's voice sort of like listening to them talk uh, back and forth is like very engaging and then of course every few minutes that they're like kind of like asking questions and they're throwing it to like a a remote reporter or they're actually um, you know doing um, some type of like you know Q&A kind of style right because that's very engaging for human beings and if you watch like ESPN or any sports show you'll see the same thing and then at these conferences right um, they'll often you know they can do anything right these people are like trying to do anything and what do they do they choose to do a conversation interview format right but then um, for some reason you know like when we become uh, we go down one more level. We go from like CEOs. We go to like just director level people. Um, everyone is just going to get used like usually like bad PowerPoint and then like talk <laughs> often in a very monologue way for like an hour. And yeah. like because like but we all know like if we were like getting paid for this, we would do um, some type of conversation format. So like I well I've never done like you know I can't say I've gotten to this level like doing I've done some interviews before, but I often often have um, told people many, many times that like, and, and I know like sometimes we do panels, but like, people are just afraid at like just having someone sit up there and interview somebody, like interview an architect or interview somebody about a product in front of people rather than like, um, and they, they everyone forces the person to like do PowerPoint and do it all by themselves, generally yeah. speaking, right? Um, so I just, if there's anything I would like to see is like, why don't we just make this interview format like much more common at a conference? Like half the things... Uh, at a conference, I think could be interviews, and then mm. maybe you have one, maybe you have like somebody that's well prepared. I mean, for example, like if you give a lot of DevOps talks and you have a really good keynote that you've worked on really hard and you've given it a bunch of times, like maybe we'd put you on stage, right? Maybe that's a good cote spot, right? Somebody who's really has something to say versus like forcing so many people up there to do it. So that's just like my own little pet peeve. It's like, hey, like not everyone really should give presentations like this. And this is a format that we could use a lot more of in conferences. Yeah, no, that, that, that makes a tremendous amount of sense. I mean, it is, uh, it is, there's a lot going on there, what you're just saying. I mean, one, uh, the, the fear of panels that people have and interviews is, I always find odd. I mean, I understand, right? Like if you don't do a lot of like putting yourself out there and talking and stuff, it, fear of public speaking is always a high thing, basically. But once you get over that, like, I would always rather be interviewed or be on a panel because that means basically I don't have to do any work, <laughs> right? Like, which that, it's a little like, uh, that's not to say that work has not been done, but it's sort of like I've already done all of that work. It's like not any new work that I need to do. And I suppose if it's like a very high stakes thing, right? Like if you are going to go be interviewed about your uh, your current quarterly results, then of course you need to learn that content. But I I think it kind, it, but still it kind of goes back to like you don't you rely on the interviewer to uh, structure the the skeleton of what you have rather than having to come up with your own presentation. And you know, again, you can pull the uh, the kind of uh, sometimes necessary but often just jerkish dick move of never answering the question and always being like that's a fascinating question but let me answer this other question and you see this in um politics especially uh which which i think is probably where it's necessary right like in politics you're just sort of like speaking through the interviewer to the actual your actual constituents and voters and they're almost just there in the same way that those coffee cups are on the table they're just part of the uh the setting but so yeah i mean i think that would be a good idea to have more i would certainly love to see more interviews uh rather than um can talks especially at a conference like this right like because so 
um, you know, maybe we should save more of this for the conferencing. But I, I always cater- I haven't been to a CRN conference, but I assume it's a lot like what I call the expo conferences. Like there used to be, and I think there still are. There, there's, there's always like there used to be a lot of cloud expo conferences, and these are basically like more or less regional junket conferences where you can pay to have a keynote there. And so a lot of people will go up and I mean, I've, I've given a talk at conferences like this and, you know, back in the, the first cloud wars, it would just be all of the usual, all of the tech vendors going over what their cloud strategy was in, in big old slides. And, uh, you know, I did that. It was weird. Uh, but they're, they're not really very good presentations. It, It would have been much nicer to have, like uh, a somewhat prepared interviewer and sit down the five or six vendors and basically interview them about what their cloud strategy was that. And maybe that would be frightening back then, but uh, yeah, that'd be, that'd be, that'd be much nicer. Yeah. And then, and then, so like I've, I haven't done like, obviously I'm not a CEO. It doesn't say that on my card, but I've done like panel stuff or interview stuff like this before. And um, I don't know. I guess, I guess I guess to be insulting some people might think of it as the uh the the B or C list, the rinky dink version of this, but you know, like I've been on the cube a couple of times and then when I was at uh, EMC World or Dell World or one of the worlds, they had they had one of these things set up where they had an interviewer hired. Um and you know, between those two, like the cube people generally uh know what they're talking about and they ask they ask interesting questions and they always have like, you know, one um, controversial question here or there, which, which, which is fun. I mean, that's, that's a whole, that's, that's another, well, we should talk about that. Like, that's an interesting thing on the vendor side to think about is when you have, it's, it's a good example of keeping up a long going, an, an ongoing genuine relationship with journalist people so that when you are sort of in their frying pan, you, you can, talk with them about difficult things in a way that's productive for both people, <laughs> right? Like there's certain types of journalists who would just always ask you like a jerk question. Um, and, you know, like, for example, let's say you're working at a large company that everyone thinks one day is either going to be acquired or IPO. I, I, don't, I wouldn't know anything about a company like that. Inevitably, when you talk with a journalist or anyone, they'll ask you when the company's going to IPO. And you're just like, why are you even asking this question? Right. Like we all know what the answer is. You know, I saw someone answer that question recently where they were like, do you know? Because I would like to know. That's that's a good shit answer. <laughs> that's funny. But um, so, you know, you're on one of these interview things uh, and and it's good. It's good to have an ongoing relationship uh, because you can kind of you, you know, their conversational style and, you know, answers you can give to them. And I think it's especially nice if you can refer back to things that the uh, the interviewer has done. Right. And. And for me, both as an audience person and participating in it, like I'm always looking to like turn something into a discussion rather than an interview. And that's that's why it's also good to know the people who are interviewing you, because you can almost if it's kind of like a bit of a it's a risky slash boss move. But if you can start asking the interviewer questions, then that starts to be. Um, and if it done well, it becomes a more interesting conversation. Like I've, I've seen it done kind of poorly a lot and I don't really do it that often. But uh, for example, on the cube, a lot of people there are, um, they have a mixture of journalists and, and analysts there. And so it's pretty easy to get an analyst to just sort of like tell you what they think about something. If you know how to uh, coax them correctly. And then, so then the second, the second format, uh, is the, uh, let's say prepared in the green room interview <laughs> where someone, an interviewer has been hired because they're good 
at being a media personality. They're not necessarily a topic expert. And so when you're in, right before you come on stage, typically, like the five or 10 minutes, they have some cards and they just say like, so uh, what do you work on and what do you want me to ask you? <laughs> and, and then you kind of just have to come up really quickly with uh, some topics to discuss. And every now and then those those types of people are well-informed enough that when you give an answer, uh, they can kind of ferret out some follow-up questions. But yeah, generally, I think I think this kind of, it's nice being an interviewee, like I was uh, saying, because you, you don't have to do that much new work. You can just rely on on the work that you have already. And I do think, you know, but you know, sometimes people, I think you're right about the work comment, but also it's okay. I think it's okay, you know, just two people at a company like you're doing a webinar. I mean, obviously we're doing a podcast, so by default we're interested in this kind of format mm-hmm. to just take something that, um, you know, that could be presented as like a 30-minute one-person, um, you know, kind of just monologue or, you know, a, gen- a generic presentation and just turn that into a set of questions. I've done this many times. We're like, yeah, of course, you know, you, you know, the answer, right? So you're just kind of saying like, so like, Hey, you know, we just released uh, this new version. Like what, you know, why, why should we care? Right. And then somebody, and then it allows people to, and it's just the fact that you give the format, even if the questions aren't, it doesn't have to be hard hitting. It's just much easier to listen to the two people, right? Two different voices. It will help the audience stay engaged, right? So, mm. um, and at most companies, especially when you're doing any type of like webinar, podcast, or digital medium, like you have plenty of people in your company that can do it. That's a lot different than not have to fly two people around to do like a scripted interview. Maybe that's too expensive. Maybe that doesn't work. But like, yeah, on this, um, when you're just doing it virtually or you're doing it on digital stuff, like it's just a much more natural way to communicate. So I don't, you know, and then of course the work there is like, yeah, you've actually done all the work. You've figured out what you're going to release. You've written a press release. You've done a presentation. And then it, the work is honestly just taking that and putting it into an outline of questions. And of course, like, you know, you, once you start to, you know, um, especially if you're like, in product management or anybody that does any type of press, right? You're just going to hear the same questions a lot. So your answers will start to be very similar, but they'll get more and more natural, right? Over time. And that's going to be much more consumable to the listener. So, um, you know, I just kind of come back to not only does that not everyone necessarily want to be a keynote presenter, it's just to do keynotes well requires a tremendous amount of practice, right? And, um, and it takes a tremendous amount of time to actually go out and create a compelling keynote that keeps people engaged, right? I think if we think about the Apple events recently, you know, they seem to be, you know, held up as probably, you know, doing the best, right? I mean, I think the amount of time and preparation and rehearsals, like if we knew it, right, would be, you know, days, weeks, right? And that's just to give a, you know, it's a pretty long thing, probably give a two-hour presentation. Now, when you like make Brandon just go out and like give some presentation, it's like, you know, I probably haven't given it like a hundred times or practice for a hundred <laughs> hours unless it happens to be this thing I do all the time. Right. But, um, you know, most of the time it's going to be just sort of like, Hey, and I even, you know, especially in smaller settings, you know, as a, and this is where I try to like let the slides just become background and try to make it conversational. There's usually somebody in an audience that wants to ask questions and if you can kind of get a little bit of Q and a going with them like in kind of in the beginning, middle and at the end, it's a lot more entertaining for all of us. Yeah. 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 It's uh yeah. Not to mention that the content should be good for your keynote. <laughs> <That's>, <laughs> yes. Yes. That, you know, going back to the expo type of conferences, that's always the issue is like, uh, you know, often a keynote is just like, you know, what's going on at HPE, which is not yeah. always very interesting. And, and I mean, it might be like, 
uh, valuable and money-making stuff, but it's not always uh, too uh, too fascinating. Not not as fascinating as a podcast that does close readings of the ephemera of, of the tech world. That's right. <laughs> well, that so, is right. so so to get to some of the actual content, uh, first of all, just uh, I mean, if we kind of we kind of define this in the episode we started talking about this, but I think. I think in thinking about the content, doing a critical reading of this content, uh, it's important to make sure you know what, what as they say, the channel is. Uh, and uh, wait, why don't you give that definition, Brandon? I think I did it last time. I bet you have a, a more concise way of putting a it. A better channel? I mean, I think, you know, my more cynical view, <laughs> definition of the channel is like, hey, we built the stuff, but we're not not sure how to sell it. You know, do you think you could? Uh, that's like, <laughs> in, my, in some ways, that's yeah. like what I think the channel is um, but it, it is really just uh, the ability to use partners, right, and uh, to go out and sell your products to a wider set of audiences. And there's lots of different channels. There's like value-added um, partners, which are really going to take your product and like do something else with it. Like so, maybe they sell your product along with a much bigger service. Um, you know, it's like I'm going to install, um, you know, the SAP software um, ERP system along with helping you redesign your business and you know come and do everything right and then there's uh, channels which are really trying to service customers where you, it's just very difficult for that company to have that relationship so for example um, you know any really really large company there's just like it's very hard for them you know if you sell servers of any kinds like and you're a very very large you know Dell or um, HP it's like you you're not really that good at you know selling one or two uh, computers necessarily it's, and also, especially in other uh, countries, so you will hook up with, you know, resellers who kind of know the the, langa, uh, the language of the local economy, how they do it, what kind of, uh, uh, you know, quote paper, right? This gets talked about, like who's paper, which just means Ooh, like, who's, who's paper. Do the legal I love that one. Yeah, yeah. Who's who's going to do the legal end of this? So it's like, for example, you may want to have a uh, reseller, and I'll just like say in France, right? Because they'll have all these. Obs- laws in France that you don't understand, you know, language and all that stuff. So just like hire a French reseller who will do all of that for yeah. you. And then, and they're the really, what they're doing is just providing you the legal and kind of sales infrastructure uh, to do the transaction. And then there's like, you know, really big uh, channels like, you know, uh, Anderson or not Anderson, what am I saying? Accenture Consulting or Deloitte, right? Where they're actually doing like massive, maybe like uh, uh, IT transformational projects that are like taking an entire data center and like um, moving it to the cloud or vice versa, right? In that case, they, they'll just be adding all kinds of products and services into that group. And so they're just kind of like fronting the entire thing and you're just one small piece yeah. of a much, much larger thing. But, you know, having been in a lot um, of channel stuff, right? And then you'll always hear like channel conflict is, is sort of talked about a lot. And you, even in these interviews, you kind of hear, they don't say channel conflict, but they just say like, Hey, like, are you going to compete with the, ch- are you going to compete with the channel? Right. And that comes up a lot. Like, are you, you know, what are the incentives there? Does the HP rep, uh, for example, uh, incented to compete and sell the servers to the same group of people that the channel partners are. Right. And this is where I, I think when I look into it a lot, like, while channels are talked about a lot, I think very few companies are really, really successful at them. Um, they really mm. have figured it out. I think most companies kind of do it as a checkbox, uh, and they kind of say all the right things, but they're not always that committed to it, right? Because it's just one of those yeah. things. If you have a direct sales force 
and you and you have a channel Salesforce, and I know everyone will disagree. Like everybody that's involved will say this is wrong. Is it's like you just always have this bias to like working with the people you know in your company, and that that's where I think it gets hard. Oof. Yeah, I mean, I mean to to add a little bit of that. I mean, I think uh, unfortunately, I'm going to use uh, in, intentionally use but not mean the judginess of it. I mean, I think to broadly divide the channel, you've got your dumb pipes and your smart pipes. In, in or channels and and the dumb ones might drive a tremendous amount of revenue but it's just something like um i, th- I think the ultimate easy to understand example of this i mean they're basically just resellers or sell-throughers and basically the way windows made a lot of money was through the channel of desktops and laptops right so all of the various uh pc manufacturers were a channel for microsoft and IBM was the first channel in that respect for Microsoft, I guess, both with basic and, and DOS. And so, again, it's kind of like you're saying, we have this we have this operating system and we don't know how to sell it because we don't do hardware or we don't have the capabilities. And so you do all of that channeling. And then there's all of those palm rest stickers and stuff are sort of some of the uh, the post-it notes of channel management. <laughs> but uh, and then and then, you, as you're saying, you got the smart pipes, which are basically like. Uh, you know, I always forget the term VAR. That's one of my favorite ones. Uh, but they're basically, you could call them partners or system integrators, but they're often people who take your complex software and get it up and running. And, you know, a very canonical example of that is like, no one just installs an SAP system, right? Like there's a tremendous amount of servicing work and stuff that comes with it. And so you would think about uh, those Accentures and Capgeminis and all the other uh, people as uh as channel people they don't really ever get labeled channel but they're kind of in that same thing as, as like the uh, the smart pipes that that our stuff moves through and then yeah yeah I w- uh, channel conflict is is really weird like and you even see that not that i would know anything about this you see that within companies where you might one group of salespeople is incented to sell one product and at a high level uh, corporate view, you're always like, if we could just get group A of salespeople to mention that we sell product B, then we could probably increase, you know, our, our sales by 10%. And of course, the group A people are like, how about fuck that? And I just keep selling what I know. <laughs> and, and, like, <laughs> and so you, you even see that across channel things. And then also, of course, of course, uh, the, the company that is selling through the channel should always be interested in in why they're not making that money directly, right? And, you know, as you point out, if you're selling, this often happens with U.S. companies, and I would have to imagine companies selling in the U.S., like, well, you just literally don't have the capability to, like, sell in China. Like, you don't know how that works, and you have no idea, and maybe in 10 years you will, so you have to have a partner there. Uh, But, you know, there's other cases where, like, and you see this in acquisitions sometimes, right? Like like even relevant to HP, there's some discussion of... uh, whatever that cloud consulting group that they bought was. And at one point, maybe that was an interesting sort of like smart pipe of a channel. And they were just like, I want that money. Let's just uh, make a one-time payment and buy it. And then we'll build out this business. And uh, they resolve the, the channel conflict. So anyhow, that's, that's, a, that's a overly unconcise channel discussion. But again, I think it's important because, so you look at the three interviews, right? So the, again, the interviews are from the CEOs of uh, HPE, uh, Docker and VMware, and uh, right away, each of these interviews, as it should, and, and this is, I think this is one of the many reasons why I think each of these are great interviews. If you care about this kind of thing, um, they start off by saying the interviewer is like, "So we got a bunch of channel people here. Tell them how you're going to make them money." 
<laughs> just like boom right away um and it's interesting there's kind of three there's almost the three modes of the worries that a channel person should have about the behemoth they're working with so you start out i don't know tell me if you think this is accurate but you start out with hp and the number one question anyone would have about hp is sort of like so are you stable right like is everything sorted out because I'm if as a as a partner I'm going to invest a lot of time in doing your stuff and if you're just going to keep being crazy then that's going to screw me and like that's almost the first thing that gets addressed is like everything's finally sorted out the reason we did this was so that we could focus more of a standard divestiture answers right the reason we did this is so that we could have better uh cash flow focused on a narrow set of things and and at one point I think she, Meg Whitman even says like the channel is the most important thing to us or something like that so basically, there's this reassurance that like we got our shit sorted out and we can just get on with the business of, of making money. And then so that's kind of like uh, having to do a lot of channel management, which which is fine. Lo long live companies have uh, just like a marriage. There's ups and downs. Uh, but uh, and then the VMware one, like it's not a perfect example of this. Microsoft would probably be a better example of this. But the VMware one is basically like everything's fine here. All you're really worried about is all this futuristic stuff that might damage what you're doing. And so, for example, as Gelsinger gets into, like, um, we have a huge install base, a huge footprint. Um, and then most all of the discussion is basically, so what is our strategy going forward so that we don't have to have the discussion HP just had with you a few years from now? We don't have to talk about how we're changing. And so he goes over a lot of strategy. Uh, there's kind of two things. One of them is like, um, I don't know, to grossly simplify it is like, things aren't going to change that much, <laughs> which I'm sure that historically that has actually proven to be the case uh, at any given point in time, maybe over a 30 year period of time. That's not a good strategy, but over a five year period of time, it's pretty solid uh, historically. Um, and then his other, the, his other main talking point is basically, I mean, I don't know. I think he's pretty directly says like, yeah, Docker Kubernetes, not a big deal. We got that covered. <laughs> which i like which yeah. is like you know again like why do you ask these questions sometimes you, people ask questions where you know there isn't going to be an answer because yeah. the answer is the answer the fact that he said it's no big deal means it's a huge deal yeah and, 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 then, that, and then that's that's what it means and then finally uh, to, to to round it out the third one from from the the docker ceo and and i i there's all as i'm fond of saying there's all sorts of blah 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 but like it's, it would be interesting to kind of pull the audience and see what their knowledge of Docker was before this, uh, before they had this, because I would bet they just know that it's like something. And, and you know, because Docker doesn't really, I haven't seen them play outside of the space, jokingly put, of hacker news very much, right? Like, I see them show up, of course, all the time when I go talk with, with IT people who want to use it, but... What am I trying to say? They haven't moved outside of the more Lockean tool user space, the practitioner space so much. And so this is one of the first times I've seen them sort of be enterprisey, <laughs> be be kind of like at a meta enterprise conference uh, rather than just sort of like um, a practitioner based thing. So that's interesting. But so this is almost a, a first date that you have with the channel from, from uh, a company. And there's obviously the presumption that Docker is a big deal and important. He, that doesn't really even get addressed. I think there might be some boasting here and there about it. But more of what you see their CEO ha having to walk through is 
what is going to be the business plan that we have, right? So he's got the, as, as my favorite thing from all of this is the every dollar Docker makes, uh, you'll make $7. He actually says 5 to $7 at some point, but no one's going to remember the 5 um, And so, like, he's basically saying this is going to be the relationship. And then he details it a bit more to say he doesn't really say it this clearly because it's a little self-judgy, but he's like, we're a small company. We are not. We have so much demand that we are not going to be able to go do all of the uh, smart pipe work uh, that needs to be done to one set up brand new workloads. But even you, you, this is what you can mention your favorite thing that he comes up with. Uh, but also, and this is another thing that's kind of new to Docker positioning and messaging. It turns out you can just use Docker to cut your VMware costs by fifty percent by by replatforming things. And again. <laughs> I don't. He doesn't really say it that clearly, and I'm probably also reading a little too much into it. But I think that's what the audience is going to hear, right? They're going to hear uh, people are going to be able to reduce their VMware costs, and I can be part of that. Um, and you know, that, I think that's a pretty good overview. That's a very clear, despite how I said he never says it that clearly. It's a very tactical thing that I think the the room could take advantage of if they wanted to start partnering with uh, with Docker. So you, yeah, I think it's a good summary. Yeah. I, th- I think you know, going back, you know, kind of through them all, it's it's just like what's in it for the channel. We just I, as I read them, I kind of took a couple of different things away. You know, on the HP one, because I think Meg what, um, says something along the lines of like we have like you know eight hundred or a thousand different configurations mm. of servers. And so, like as a channel person, you're just like okay, like your opportunity there is HP is so large and so complicated that you can't find a. Um, <clears throat> That you know what you're going to do is try to find a niche within that massive yeah. product portfolio that you've got a set of customers and, and there's a niche in there that you know really even HP itself can't figure out and that's your opportunity. So in this case, I really think it's like HP really really means that they need the partner because yeah. they know their portfolio is complicated. They know, and I think the people in the channel know there's lots of money to be made here because of all this complexity, and they're going to undo that. So that's sort of like a really strong value proposition. Some smart channel people will figure that out. I think in VMware, it kind of flips all the way around. I think the channel partner, like they just all they're going to hear is like VMware, and they're like, yeah. Yeah, we know our customers need that and they want to buy it a lot, right? And the guys, VMware is like, CEO will just say like, oh, we we sell the VMware licenses and, you, and you're going to need that. Like it's just not – there's just not <laughs> yeah. complicated. It's like I have the thing – and it's also VMware. Well, I know it's part of the, the larger you know, Dell portfolio. It's just a very simple value proposition. Even though the product line and the products are very complicated, it's like, yes, we need to uh, run on virtualized servers and we have a lot of VMware today and we need to just – up, renegotiate, and buy more. And, and, so and, and very, just very this is for if, the channel to, to interrupt you. I mean, I, this is another good opportunity to witness the um, uh, what, what did we characterize it last time as? Sort of like the the runaway media narrative, <laughs> the 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 you know <laughs> right. twelve twelve consecutive quarters problem. Um, and you can see Gelsinger trying to battle against that. And so you are just kind of going over or alluding to what the runaway narrative is about VMware, which is basically. It's just vSphere, right? Like they just make all of their money off of virtualization in the same way that you might um, you might think about Microsoft is just selling Windows. And, you know, a, a slightly more wise thing would be like, actually, it's a lot. It's also Office. And then more wise would be like, no, bro, 
the server software is where all the money is, right? So anyways, the runaway narrative with VMware that you can see battled here is that we make all of our money off of VM of, of vSphere, which or which is now threatened and so forth, therefore you should freak out. And you can see Gelsinger proactively addressing this by saying, at this moment, only 50% of our revenue revenue comes from vSphere. And we have, and, and I think he even gives you some growth rates or allusions to it. We have grown the non vSphere revenue in VMware over past years, obviously, to be the other 50%. Um, or maybe they have some finance department that makes money, whatever. Uh, and, and so he's trying to change this narrative that we're not just, the, we're not a one product company. And then this, of course, you know, towards the end, he d- actually talks about pivotal uh, uh, container service a lot, which is interesting. It was, it was fun to read, uh, read his take on all of that. Um, but he even goes to like, here's what the future of the portfolio is. And this is how we're evolving. So it kind of gets back to what I was saying of uh, he's trying to, talk about how there will be something tomorrow to sell but uh it's a good example of runaway narrative yeah no and i think you know the narrative thing that he's doing there and i think just to really unwind it is that you know the kind of very hot take narrative is like well vmware's done you know it's it's all over every the world's containers and it's like no the answer there and and what he's saying is like no no we and and this is what we're saying at the beginning of the podcast like people will continue to buy vmware and use vmware for a long long time now that i think is a fact i also think it's a fact that like it's that vmware is very unlikely to grow at the kind of rates it experienced earlier in its career right because i mean it's like one of the all-time you know it's it's really in the pantheon of enterprise software like it's you know it's probably in the top 10 right you know behind a couple big hits like microsoft and others but um you know, and it's just you're just not going to replicate that, and and so so the fact that he and I think he's just you know, and that's why I thought like maybe at the end he kind of lost his way a little bit. It was like, well, you know, containers don't matter, and then he yeah, and later on he comes back and he's like, but the the PKS thing is the way of the future. So this is where I think he, I I sympathize with him, but I think you know I would just say a more honest assessment is like, yeah, we're going to continue to be a really profitable company that will not grow at these incredible rates. Um, Again, but we're still going to be around, and you're, we're still very valuable. And I think the people in the ch- in the audience totally get that. They're like, "Yeah, we're going to keep selling VMware licenses for a while." I don't think they are necessarily like. If anything, that talk is more for uh, investors or stock analysts, yeah, right? Yeah, yeah. It's like, well, does, uh, when I model my spreadsheet, is it a six percent growth rate or an eighty percent? You know, it's like that's what he's trying to talk up there. So. Um, so I think you know he he did like I thought that was interesting, but I think again that has a real important channel component. And then Docker, right? Docker is much closer to what I think is like, hey, as I open the podcast for or this at least this segment around, like, hey, uh, we have this cold technology. Maybe you could figure out how to make money over that because <laughs> it's it is like yes, um, I think most people on the service provider side or people that do professional services of any kind. I think they should, if they don't know anything about Docker, that would be kind of surprising. But they clearly are probably aware of containers and the various technologies and certain, certainly Kubernetes. And I think they probably are already like, yeah, we're going to do some services project to help people kind of adopt this new technology. Yeah. But in the same breath in their mind, they're like, hmm, I'm not so sure we need Docker. Like we don't need Docker, the company, to get involved here. Like do we need to license their stuff, right? Like like, are we going to use the orchestration platform? Like why would we use their runtime? You know, so it's not clear to me that they have a strong – they're I think more in the full ex- – uh, and he even says it, right? There's like whatever, a few hundred – I don't know how many Docker – he says it. Like, there's like – 
not that many Docker employees compared to like all the people that want to do business to them with them. But I think what he really means is there's not that many Docker employees versus like all the potential opportunities. So I think he's a little bit more fishing. Like, hey, like why don't you guys work with us? Because everyone's going to do it, and you know if we all stumble into some great business model and partnership, that would be fun. That would be great, right? But they don't, you know, to me, it's not clear they have a real strong answer of like why they're going to get paid in that. And that's why yeah. this, um, and he obviously has a strong background at Concur and then SAP and others. So that's, you know, ultimately, I assume why he was brought in to figure that out. But he didn't come across to me um, as someone that other, because I didn't like the, and I guess, you know, it's fun to read the VMware interview back to back with the Docker interview, right? Because the VMware guy says Docker's not a threat. Uh, the Docker guy says, uh, he says, yeah, yeah, we're going to coexist with containers. But then most of his money, I mean, I don't know. I have to go back and read it. But like, I think most of his savings, he's, he's talking about not having to spend money on um, VMware licenses. So it, it felt a little bit like, you know, just not coherent. You know, not, not like, I wouldn't say not coherent. It's just a little bit confused, I guess is the way I'd say it, uh, how he ended, like about like, we're going to modernize applications for you and reduce costs. And oh yeah, there's plenty of room and there's going to be VMware and we're partners with them. And it's like, I don't know, that part didn't feel quite as genuine to me. Yeah. 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 No, and, and so, so there is, I, I, I was struggling to find, uh, I was, I was thinking, I think I actually made a blog post quoting some of this stuff. So I finally found it. And, uh, what does he say? He's like, where does the 50% savings come? And then he's like, few different areas. The biggest is honestly in the mass reduction in VMs. And I, I love this. They're very helpful. They put in square brackets, virtual machines. Thanks, copy <laughs> editors. And that's not good or bad. It's just the reality. The other is that there is, and, and that we, we, should, we should definitely hit up the, um, uh, it's not equivocating. The, the, he, he's trying to be a nice guy. The faint praise of like good or bad. I, I always love the trope of like, hey, I'm not trying to say that guy's an asshole, but he's just an asshole. That's just the facts. Uh, so, <laughs> so the other is that there is a massive increased density factor on compute. And so we can put a lot more workloads on a fewer number of servers. And then he, he I, I, I should go look up if this is a major case study. All of a sudden he brings Nestle into the mix, which which is interesting. I, I love it when like a startup CEO just kind of like throws in a reference because it either means that it's a... And I hope it's not the first one, and I always hope it's the second. It's like one of their you and the way we cover this stuff closely enough that we can usually recognize the um, uh, the pantheon of of the three use cases they have. And I don't know if Nestle's one, but I always hope it's just because like thirty minutes ago they sat down with a Nestle person and they're just kind of like saying, oh, "I just talk with these Nestle people, and here's what they said." Because yeah, that's a lot more interesting. Anyways, so it is. You know, he does spell out the way that you're going to save this money is, uh, as we were talking about, by paying VMware less and putting more stuff on compute, which, you know, th this is this is uh, a, a, a theory not to be looked too deep down in the rabbit hole of, but there must be some industry studies of do people actually reuse existing hardware? And my totally unfounded intuition is that, like, you don't really reuse existing hardware. Like once you install SharePoint on that server, that's all that server ever does. <laughs> and and like I don't I don't know. I always think it's a little dodgy to say that you're going to. Uh, I mean, I guess VMware maybe did this, but it'd be interesting to study if that actually happened in VMware. That instead of just chucking out your old hardware or leaving it running, if you actually optimized that hardware, not which which is fine, whatever. But uh, uh, yeah, that's 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 uh, I, th I think that's the uh, the quote there. And then and then what was the uh, 
uh, yeah, like you said, like reading these back to back is good. And I think I think the other the other thing I was going to mention is that, especially for us, I wouldn't say that we intimately know Docker, the the company, but we certainly do talk a lot about it. <laughs> and so, <laughs> and so over the years, one of our one of our favorite. Um, hopefully not annoying for listeners, but favorite things to do is, as you were just saying, is like, so what's Docker's business model? And I remember way back to when I was an analyst and they had um, they had been as their CEO, I got very excited with this one chart that, that they had, which they since used some places that kind of showed it used one of my favorite smart art uh, diagrams, the, the arrow that goes upward, not a hockey stick arrow, but the smooth arrow curve. And it was kind of mm-hmm. explaining what their product roadmap was. And you could, or their product strategy, let me put it that way. And you could kind of decode how they were going to make money from it. And I I don't know if that's ever really been fulfilled. So we are always on the lookout, not only for what the monetization strategy is, and and there's a, in the history of Docker, there's a relatively good one that gets explained here, not relative to just the rest of the world, but to, to their history, it's pretty good. But I think, I think I don't know, I'll speak for myself, but I'm also, when I was reading this, one of the things, as I was saying, that made it kind of weird and unexpected to read about Docker in this context is, and I don't know, I'll just be brutal about it. It's like, yeah, but you might be fired as CEO in three months, <laughs> right? Like, <laughs> like everything might just dramatically change, like it sort of kind of has every year at Docker. And so this sounds cool, but like how much of this did you make up? Uh, or did you yeah. and, and your posse make up versus like this is the actual Docker strategy? And even worse, you probably presented this to the board. And does that matter? <laughs> right. Like like he he doesn't really spend much time like Whitman because the audience, I think, doesn't know this or need to know it. Right. This is just like what insidery people like you and I know. Uh, and, and you would have to address is like he doesn't have to do what Whitman does and address like, hey, guys. And girls, gals, I know that Docker seemed like a crazy place, just like HP, but it's stable now, right? So he <laughs> he never really has to address that. But for an audience like us, he would need to address like the uh, the perceived craziness of it, or at least dismiss it and tell us that we were wrong uh, to perceive yeah, it. Yeah, no, and I, I do, you know, this is at least the first significant interview I've read of um, the new Dor- yeah. Docker CEO, and you know, I'm sure he's ta- spoken many times, but you know, it's clear, right? that you know as they say like past this prologue right the in you know his experience right and we all are driven by our own experiences me included is like where did all the money come from in this last revolution right it came from instead of just buying hardware and services you bought vmware and there's a clear cost savings value proposition so it's clearly like that's what he has sold to the board of directors right and it's just it's just taking the vmware model and then applying it again just saying hey guys like i think you know the off the record stuff is we're going to be the next vmware we're going to go out and you know be the the thing that everyone buys going forward to like actually run all of these applications right so yeah you know the but of course you know nothing uh in the past is ever the same is exactly the same in the future right and this is where we've had a lot of discussions i know in software defined talk around like well the thing that's changed here is is the cloud right and the fact that like maybe most of this money actually doesn't accrue as software licenses it accrues as like cloud hosting kind of stuff and that's going to fall to like uh, the Googles, the Microsofts, the yeah. Amazons, hopefully some little bit of IBM and, you know, some, and some other places, right. And like, and, or being packaged up like in Pivotal in that case, like he's really in a no man's land, right. He, to your point, this is why everything changes at Docker is that, and I think, you know, 
you know, if we were more honest, right, maybe what the board of directors has says, like, well, okay, we tried, like, kind of the open core thing, right, and didn't really happen, and it's sort of like, you know, like the, you know I think you kind of, like, the, the CEO graduated, if you will, kind of like the technology's good enough. Now we need to experiment with some business models. Let's try this one, and this is the guy, this is the play he's going to run, and if that doesn't work, there will be a new CEO and he'll yeah. have maybe a different, you know, a, maybe a more cloudy take on, you know, okay, I'm going to, I don't know what it will be. It will be something else. Right. And, um, and if you go back, let's look at a, a, a quick aside would be like a consumer company like Facebook, right? They aggregated all this demand and then they spent years tinkering with different advertising units till they figured out this mobile unit. And then now they make tons of money. Google's the same way. They aggregated all the search demand and then they figured out the right ad units. So you could say the same thing's happening in Docker. They've aggregated lots of interest in containers. They are searching for their ad unit to make tons of money. Yeah. And you know, you know, it may take, it may figure it out 90 days, may take several years, may not ever happen. You just don't know. Yeah, and, and and then and then to to maybe uh, to try to tie the ribbon on it a little bit. It is, um, it is it is it is noticeable if if you follow this stuff that like basically, uh, Docker is back to the narrative that they've been running away from forever, which is taking out VMware. <laughs> right. Like like I remember I remember um, many years ago. I forget when, <laughs> but you know at, there's um. There's a couple of like investor conferences that happen, and and I'm always trying to get laced into this because it seems good, and I think I screwed it up a few years ago with the like Pacific Crest people. But there's like investment conferences that go on, and uh, I remember early on when when Docker, maybe two years after Docker was no longer Dot Cloud, um, like the question that everyone had at these investor conferences was like, so this is a VMware replacement, right? Can you help me predict, you know, I need to update my spreadsheets <laughs> for, for VMware about the growth rate of Docker and the cost and all this kind of stuff. And I remember, I remember talking with the, you know, cloud and DevOpsy cognoscenti who would go to these and they, they just, they just hated that framing. They were like, no, it's not about taking out VMware. Like it's, oh, I hate that question. And like, but and then, and then so you know the whole community I think has sort of been trying to run away from that narrative. Well, well the uh, you know the sarcastic assholes like us are always like, hey, like you know just keep returning to it. But um, uh, and 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 at this point, so again, it's nice. Uh, you know, there was some reasoning between me picking out these three interviews. Uh, like you see, Gelsinger directly addressing this. Right, he he gives the ultimate defense, which, um. Until like a Gartner does like a three-year analysis to figure out if this is true or not, then it's a pretty good defense, which is like, yeah, Google runs everything in VMs, which they probably don't pay VMware for, but never mind that. And uh, everyone else runs everything in VMs, so you're just going to run containers in VMs. So we're still here. Pow! Right? Like, so it's kind of like, yeah, containers are nice, but you're going to run them in VMs, um, which – Again, seems to be the case. I don't know. We'll see how it pans out. I know. I did highlight that myself. I, you know, maybe we'll get on a software defined talk. We'll make Matt Ray explain it to us. Like, I need to personally go dive into that because I'm pretty sure Google isn't using VMware, and I would like to know exactly what VMs they're using and if that is really unique to them. Because um, I think that was the way that that quote it was very succinct. But I, I imagine if we dig into that, we're going to find lots of yeah, interesting yeah. things and, about it. And you know, obviously. And probably yourself at well to a certain extent, but I'm highly biased for Gelsinger to be 110 percent correct, <laughs> right? <laughs> like the the you know, maybe not. May, I, I'm biased, maybe not highly, because because there's enough 
strategically for various options. Anyways, um, but uh, yeah, I mean, that's, so it's an interesting defense. But to, to round out my rambling here, finally, at least so long as uh, this strategy is in play, Docker is explicit about being a VMware takeout. Right, like they there's and there's some slight hemming and hawing, but it's it's damn clear. Is he's just like, yep, this is our new business model. We uh, we're doing the low cost alternative. The the all those people who said that Docker was uh, you know Christensen disrupting VMware, they were right all along. And uh, you know we were just right. we were just busy participating in the comment threads on Hacker News, so we didn't really get our shit together. Uh, but that's that's the business, folks. Which yeah. which I, I think, think historically back- is notable. And I think we talked about this right after the Docker sort of exploded with all its original funding. It's like, listen, if you take this money, like they had, there was options. There were options years ago, right? Like it didn't have to be this way. There's an, there are other things Docker could be focused in on, right? But when you take such an enormous amount of money, investors and human beings, all we can do is like look to the past to like try to predict the future, right? Because we don't have anything. You're kind of forced down this path. So you know, that was the decision, right? So when you took all this, like, again, you could have probably run a company and taken just a few million dollars and sold it for like $60 million and kind of just gone a totally different direction. But, you know, like I said, I don't fault them for it, but I just, I hope they were aware when they took that path, when they took that money, this is what they were going to be committed to one way or the other. Yeah. Yeah. And, and, you know, I I think so, so uh, returning to what we opened with, so we can close out, your suggestion of, of a column piece basically exploring this idea of are containers just for custom-written software or are they basically just VM takeout stuff, right? Like, And, and I don't think there's an answer, but there is. it's probably worth pointing out that that framing is being battled around with. I mean, I think that's, that, is, that is kind of an evolution of what's happening. And I think, I think to be all like vendor sportsy person, right? Like I think uh, – I, th- I think I think part of what makes Kubernetes interesting, and why we obsess about it so much, is that was kind of that is 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 becoming the last straw on the camel's back, where everyone's just like, I don't know, fuck it, containers win, so we're going to need Kubernetes. Oh look, it's right here, <laughs> right? Like right. We're, we're all going to get involved in this distro. It's it's kind of like that moment where uh, there was two moments. It was just sort of like. Hmm. I guess Linux is going to win. We better do something about that. <laughs> and then, and then the second moment there was just like, uh, well, I guess we're going to run on Red Hat, except for those weird Oracle people. And uh, so we better have rail compatibility. <laughs> and like, you can kind of see this like this infrastructure play. You know, I, I sometimes talk about market windows, right? You can see this market window. It's not closing yet, but you can see that a lot of people have their hands on the window and, and they've, re- they've realized that it's painted shut. So someone's been sent to get a knife so they can start to close this window and just kind of like uh, solid down what, uh, what the stack is going to be here. Maybe. We'll see what happens. Someone might get distracted. Right. A rabbit might walk past outside the window. Well, and I also just think like the, you know, we always jump to the end much faster than the reality. And I think that all of these things can be true. Like VMware can still grow just at an albeit slower rate because people are going to still want to use it for existing applications or some new applications. But at the same time, right? And again, maybe it's a single digit growth, right? I mean, it's not this euphoric big thing. At the same time, Docker can also grow and convert some of these other applications. And probably the thing that that Docker crowd really helps is like that provides enough momentum 
to jump Docker to like a new problem that we haven't quite figured out, right? You know what I'm saying? That's like there's a new market out there that we haven't seen in the past that we don't quite understand. And that's probably do they get enough runway by converting these applications and kind of using this VMware replacement um, business model for a while that something new opens up? And then you just don't know, right? And that's just how it's going to play out. So again, like all this stuff's going to be around for a while. Nothing's going to change overnight. It's just, you know, we just like to write stories that say either this person is dead or this person one but mm-hmm. it'll it'll play out over like you know the next decade exactly yeah someone should write a docker is dead uh thing if matt assay hasn't written that already <laughs> but absolutely his, his matt x is dead he, he's the uh <laughs> he's the undertaker of, of of the tech world at the moment uh but so there you go the interview format i think i think hopefully you know it, it is as we said it's tedious but if you have listened this far it's well worth your time to power through reading those three things uh, just because it'll give you a very good uh, idea of, I mean, all sorts of things. Like like all the things that we look at, it's just sort of like one porthole into the broader way that the, the tech world operates, the machinations, or is it machinations? I, as, as, as my friend Josh Knowles, who I've known for a long time, uh, once said, obviously you read a lot more than you talk, which, which I, think, I think I might have changed that ratio with 10 or 15 years of podcasting, but we'll see uh, since he said that. Um, so anyways, uh, yeah, it's worth checking those out. And, and I, think, um, I, think, I think they're good representative pieces. And, and then also, to, uh, as I'm fond of saying, to be clear about it, I think, I think each of the, the interviewees was excellent in, in the way they did here, right? And uh, I, th- I think uh, the, you know, the, the negative stuff we had to say just sort of uh, highlights the weird positions and the difficulty the companies are in, not to be overly apologetic here. But um, in particular, they're each very good examples of how you would be interviewed and what you would say and for the, the place that those companies are at. And I don't know if I were to pick, I think overall for this, for the job to be done here, I think, I think Whitman's is the best one because it, it does that kind of reassuring of what's going on. If you read it closely enough, you can be like, they know damn well what their channel strategy is. Like, you can tell they've spent a lot of time thinking about it. Like, and, and what really makes this pop out is what you were saying is, is um, and this is annoying, but it's something, you know, it's kind of like a winking nod that you have to give to people is be like, I know we have a lot of stuff. We've got a lot of skews and we're working on that, <laughs> right? Like, we're trying to make your life easier. So we need to decomplexify things. Um, so with that... This has been another exciting episode of the uh, Software Defined Talk Members Only White Paper Exegesis Podcast. Sometimes that phrase members only likes to scurry about forward and backward in the title. I'll have to see what I used last time, but you get the idea. If you're listening to this, you've either benefited from some benign piracy from one of our members, which is fine, uh, but you're already a a member over at patreon.com slash SDT. And, you know, I've noticed, Brandon, that people have been upgrading their uh, what they're paying us, which... Uh, you know, you and I, off the record, I always have this conversation of like, I have no idea if I'm doing a good job, and I'm pretty sure I'm not. But but they seem to keep giving me money. So that must be a good indication that I'm doing a good job. So we must be working out if people keep raising their uh, their things from a dollar one person, even upgraded from $5 to $10. Wow. Amazing. Wow. So thank, thanks. Incredible. Thanks to, uh, you know, uh, thanks to that person. That was that was a good move. So it's always encouraged if you want to give us more money, and then we can, uh, get more money. <laughs> but uh, also, um, I've been meaning to do this. If, if you want to get in on more of the conversation and, and definitely uh, suggest things, 
you can, uh, thanks to, uh, you know, never have to use SSH again, JJ, you can go to softwaredefinedtalk.com slash Slack, and you can get the pleasure of signing up for another Slack account. Uh, and and join us in the in the I, I think our growth rates are pretty good week over week we're still you know you know a, a, a cagger across zero to five is stupendous I mean we're still growing <laughs> but um, there's a lot of good conversation and things going on in that channel uh, in that channel in that that chat room and I'm gonna go create a channel for the uh, the white paper podcast here where uh, we can we can have more discussion of what's going on there. So again, you go to uh, softwaredefinedtalk.com/slash/slack uh, and uh, do that. And then also, um, we know there's some more detailed show notes we have here as usual. And uh, if you go to whatever the listing is in patreon.com/sdt, you can find a link to that there and uh, get involved in that. So we'll see everyone next time. Bye bye.